Welcome to Unaffordable, a podcast about affordability solutions in Boulder County, brought to you by Boulder Weekly and KGNU. I'm Angela K. Evans. The secret's out. Boulder, Colorado is beautiful, progressive, walkable, safe, and increasingly unaffordable. But Boulder's not alone in its affordability crisis. The need for reliable, affordable housing outweighs supply in many areas of the U.S. Across the country, legislators, nonprofit organizations, city planners, housing advocates, and regular people are searching for answers. Unsurprisingly, though, discussions about affordable housing can be confusing, with numerous programs, funding sources, and strategies involved. The amount of bureaucracy on federal and local levels can be intimidating both for those who need affordable housing and for those in the community concerned about it. But as we've heard over and over in our reporting, there's no one-size-fits-all solution to the affordability crisis. These problems are like the spokes of a bicycle wheel connected to a central hub. There are many facets that cause unaffordability, even more problems that can arise from it, with each solution addressing but one. In each episode of Unaffordable, we'll present an interview with someone involved in affordability solutions, from design to homeowners association costs to transportation access and more. This is just one person's opinion on one aspect covered in our written series, which you can find at boulderweekly.com. So to start, we need to understand the current situation, the programs, policies, and strategies local jurisdictions are currently using to increase affordable housing across Boulder County. To do that, I'm sitting here with Jonathan Capelli. Hey, Jonathan, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. With more than a decade of experience in housing policy, Jonathan is the executive director of the Neighborhood Development Collaborative, a nonprofit network of 18 front-range affordable housing and community development organizations, including Boulder Housing Partners. So Jonathan, I want to start today with a little bit of history. How has the affordable housing conversation changed over the last couple decades? You know, back in the 60s, it was uh, actually a key part of the civil rights movement and a central part of Martin Luther King's campaign uh, in Chicago before he was assassinated. But unfortunately, uh, public housing era segregation um, and concentration of poverty and disinvestment meant that both before and after that movement, uh, it was often considered to be basically a four-letter word. Um, Until recently, that perception continued uh, into the early to mid-2010s. Many cities across Colorado had little in the way of funding for affordable housing. Um, And any proposed developments were really commonly met with a popular outcry. Uh, and so there's a whole acronym that was invented to categorize that, uh, N-I-M-B-Y, NIMBYism, which stands for Not in My Backyard. While NIMBY sentiments persist to this day, the reduction of federal housing funding um, and also the post-recession skyrocketing of housing prices and rents resulted in municipalities across Colorado changing their tune. When you start to realize that your workforce, your middle-class peers, your adult children, and your basic workers can't afford to live in your community anymore, everything kind of changed. And the public image uh, that the beneficiaries of affordable housing were these sort of caricatures of poverty-stricken inner-city folk kind of changed as they looked more and more like the old guard that was in control of whether or not housing policies would get passed. Um, And so the socioeconomic and the economic effects of insufficient housing supply began to look less partisan and more like just a matter of infrastructure. As a result, despite the fact that housing has been unaffordable for many Coloradans for some time, you know, Denver went from funding at $4 million a year in 2013 to $77 million in 2021. Boulder as well drastically increased its funding 
and communities across the front range have started commissioning housing studies and are trying to pass their own affordable housing funds. However, it's largely been a game of catch-up, uh, one that's pretty hard to win without making some really big changes as soon as possible. Yeah, so Boulder County, and like you said, the entire Denver metro area have become increasingly unaffordable for many. Do you have more specifics about why you think that is? Well, since 2015, um, median home values uh, rose about two times the rate of the rest of the country in Colorado. Um, and about at about $458,000, the average cost of a home today in Colorado is pretty unaffordable to anyone making um, under $100,000. About 50% of renters pay 30% or more of their income on housing, and 26% of all renters spend at least 50% of their income on housing. Uh, our housing costs across the country rank about fifth or sixth nationwide. So how do we get here? Well, it really comes from the interplay of a number of complex issues. We'll start with just four. Um, one is the uh, investor-led acquisition and flipping of foreclosed properties in mostly low and minority communities uh, during the and after the recession. Uh, this led to gentrification as those property values increased due to that investment. Uh, number two, uh, there was a, a demand far in excess of supply. Uh, and then number three, was that market and regulatory constraints, uh, as well as political constraints, further constricted whatever supply there was. And then finally, because there was hadn't been a history of affordable housing policy in this state for a while, uh, everyone sort of had to figure it out and fly by the seat of their pants, and we're playing this game of catch-up that I alluded to earlier. Um, yeah, so talk to me a little bit more about that issue of supply and demand. You know, obviously the demand far outweighs the supply, um, and how do we fix that? essentially? So it's pretty difficult. Uh, just because of where we are, we, our market is one of the fastest growing um, and most expensive markets of any state that isn't a coastal city. Uh, and, you know, ever since the Great Recession, there was, right before the Great Recession, there was a slight surplus of housing units compared to the population. Um, but every year since 2009, there's been more people moving here than there have been new housing units produced. So that alone would have just created a rise in costs, and that's similar to what we're seeing across the country with you know, urban uh, metro areas everywhere. Uh, however, there are some other things that further constricted that. So one is second homes. Uh, a ton of communities, uh, especially rural communities, had a pretty large influx of second homes um, outside of their normal purview, which would have been just resort communities. Lake County, for instance, where Leadville, Leadville is, uh, has about one-third of its single-family homes are now second homes. Next uh, was the conversion of single-family homes into short-term rentals. Uh, part of that uh, has to do with the recreation uh, industry that we have here and people's you know, desire to get out into rural communities and, uh, and not stay in a hotel while they're there. Uh, so that and the proliferation of Airbnb uh, really impacted the supply of single-family homes, both for home ownership opportunities and for you know longer-term workforce rentals. Then there was the fact that a ton of single-family homes were converted into from home ownership into rental. So in Metro Denver, for instance, about 31% of all the rental units that are in that area are actually within single-family homes, not multifamily homes. Um, and the rate that the of single-family home rental increase 
since 2007 was about 37%. So that actually exceeded the rate of multifamily rental increases. So this continues to add to those other issues to constrain the supply. Just a couple more points. Development costs. Uh, lumber has been up about 250% since last year. Uh, and then finally, you have regulatory issues where uh, height limits, density limits, you know, limits on the number of unrelated roommates per household unit. Um, all those things uh, add to the supply and demand discrepancy uh, and just exacerbate it. Also, there's a fact that, as I mentioned earlier, we're playing catch up, right? So over the last 10 years of skyrocketing prices since the Great Recession, it really took into the last five years for most com communities in Colorado to actually pass policies and programs to react to that. So larger urban areas like Denver and Boulder and some affluent rural resort communities were able to pass funds. Non-resort communities were pretty cash-strapped and capacity-strapped and couldn't pass those funds. Ideally, the state should have stepped in to fill that gap, but the lack of political will, partisanship, TABOR, and rent control and perceived statutory constraints meant that they've only really passed meaningful legislation to help those smaller communities in the last two or so years. Yeah, so you talked about you know, some of the policies that local jurisdictions have that limit affordable housing or, you know, contribute to this issue of, of supply and demand. But what are some of the main programs, policies, and even, you know, maybe overall strategies that local jurisdictions are using right now to increase affordable housing, specifically, you know, across Boulder County? Okay, so even though Boulder County uh, and the city of Boulder in particular it's pretty well known for being unaffordable. There are a lot of policies it's tried to pass, although, as I mentioned earlier, the reason for its perceived lack of efficacy has in part to do with the game of catch-up it's been playing. But what do they have? So Boulder City has uh, the inclusionary um, housing ordinance, um, and this is something that they ran in spite of a sort of legal consensus at the state level that it ran in the face of something called the Telluride decision, and so it was technically illegal. And so most other cities wouldn't pass that kind of fund um, because they were concerned about being sued, but, but Boulder pushed forward. So this really creates inclusive communities by incentivizing developers to build 25% of their units affordable. And when they don't do that, they can pay a fee. That fee goes into a fund, which then raises funds for other ways of creating affordable housing. Uh, we also have a pretty high commercial linkage fee here, uh, which essentially calculates the effect of new development, new commercial development, and the jobs it creates on the housing market. And then there's an impact fee, which it levies, that's set at a level relative to that, which then goes into affordable housing fund. We also have an eviction defense fund for renters who can't afford to defend themselves in court and get representation. Uh, we have a housing excise tax. Uh, there's also a sales and property tax uh, revenue set aside. So there's a number of ways that Boulder, um, the city of Boulder, uh, has tried to tackle this affordable housing issue. But the total levels of funding needed to actually make a dent aren't quite there, and we can get into that later. But as far as the rest of the county goes, uh, Longmont is another pretty good city. Uh, they have around $2 million a year. Um, they also uh, went ahead and passed an inclusionary housing ordinance, um, courageously, I would say. Uh, and they have a down payment assistance program. There's a marijuana tax uh, that it contributes to it. There's uh, fee waivers for new affordable housing development, uh, density 
bonuses uh, if you're creating affordable housing and parking reductions uh, as well. Uh, so all these things, they're fund plus them working at all levels of government to streamline uh, and not sort of fight against themselves to pull off affordable housing is really admirable. As for the rest of the cities uh, in the county, Lafayette has a fund of about a million dollars a year that it generates through an impact fee, but Louisville, Superior, Erie, and many of the other cities uh, don't really have their own funds or many policies that uh, facilitate the creation of affordable housing. That's why for a while now there's been a countywide initiative to try and create a regional planning model and agreement between all the constituent municipalities of the county to ensure that everyone is pulling their fair weight to meet a set of housing goals that were set out in 2018, which maybe we can get to later. Yeah, we'll definitely get back to that. Um, but I do want to ask you a little bit more about the funding mechanisms, because I think this creates a lot of confusion for people. So how do these local funds interact with federal and state funds and even policies to create actual housing for people? It's a good question. Uh, so because affordable housing uh, doesn't really net the same returns as market rate housing, it's difficult to get banks to invest at sufficient levels to build quality homes or units at the income levels that most communities need. So there's a gap between what private investment is willing to contribute and the cost to build. This is filled by a combination of federal grants, federal and state tax credits, state grants and loans, uh, and also local grants and loans. So local grants and loans, uh, some of the funds we were speaking about earlier, usually comprise just 5 to 10%, sometimes more, of the total cost of any given project. But without it there to sort of be the first money in to leverage state and federal funding, projects usually can't get billed. Uh, tax credits are a pretty large contributor to multifamily uh, affordable housing, uh, but they're also a little tricky because uh, although they can fund between 30 to 60% of any given building's cost, um, the most valuable tax credits are competitive, and every year there's more proposals than there are awards. So essentially, you have the local money which comes in uh, demonstrating the willingness to pull off the project. Uh, if it's multifamily, you'll, might, you might have tax credits come in at 30% to 60% of the total cost. You'll get some private investment, which may, it may be 30% of that cost, and then the remaining uh, uh, gap is filled by these HUD allocations at the federal level uh, through grants, and then also um, any other state grants or loan programs. So they all kind of combine uh, to uh, cover the, the, the gap left by the private investment. Although it varies if you're talking about permanent supportive housing for those who are experiencing homelessness or you know, moderate income or low-income renters or homeownership. But those are the main sources of funding for affordable housing. That makes sense. It's, I think from the outside, it can be very hard for people to understand all of those different funding mechanisms. Um, so thanks for explaining that. You're listening to Unaffordable, a podcast about affordability solutions from Boulder Weekly and KGNU. I'm Angela K. Evans, and today we're talking with Jonathan Capelli, the Executive Director of the Neighborhood Development Collaborative. 
what is missing in Boulder County? I mean, you talked about what we're doing well and each jurisdiction, you know, is doing even maybe in defiance of the state or consensus of state law, but what's missing? And we're still not there yet. Well, fortunately, uh, at the state level, uh, there was an initiative to pass a bill that enabled municipalities uh, to enact their own inclusionary housing ordinances and just make it crystal clear that they could do that as long as they met a series of criteria that the bill set out. So, you know, uh, Boulder is no longer quite the rebel that it was, uh, but hopefully other uh, communities will take uh, its lead um, and, uh, and also roll out this program. But to answer your question about what's missing, it's a complex question, and so the answer is complex, but uh, there's a lot that can be done differently. At one level, there needs to be a change in the philosophy in terms of how we address and look at affordable housing, its function and its benefits, uh, that will help us achieve some of the, the goals of increasing funding that are really at the core of what we need to do. So understanding that housing is you know, at the base of or the cornerstone of so many economic, social, and other elements of human flourishing, uh, you really need to not treat it at, like it's a silo and include it as a strategy in other efforts. So we know that you know housing supports a workforce, and so there's a strong economic development component. We know that permanently supportive housing uh, reduces um, recidivism rates um, for uh, folks who are suffering from homelessness, um, and in the example of Denver, uh, actually, after housing 350 homeless people for four, five years, uh, saved them almost $4 million over that time. So there's a, a benefit to the bottom line of municipalities that house people, plus being the right thing to do. We know stable housing reduces student absenteeism and improves educational outcomes. Uh, we know that the largest determinant of wealth in this country is still home ownership. If homeownership is considered to be the primary path to economic stability and wealth building in America, and we consider equal opportunity to be a right, then reasonable access to affordable homeownership is part and parcel of the American dream. So if we take that philosophical approach, uh, then we can uh, allocate the correct levels of funding to actually make a difference. And that's another core part of the issue. Uh, most cities across the state and Boulder included, uh, don't really fund things strategically. They kind of do an ad hoc sort of uh, process for determining how much funding there should be. So most cities conduct housing studies to figure out what their total housing needs are, and anyone listening today can go and see that on Boulder's website, on Longmont's website, and also at the county level. Uh, and then uh, they identify, you know, what how much housing they would need to produce in order to meet various goals. Uh, but what citizens need to do is demand that those studies are paired with an analysis of what the total cost is to actually meet those goals, and then hold their officials accountable to passing the appropriate funding levels. Cities shouldn't get a pass for passing a few hundred thousand dollars here or a million dollars there um, without it being couched in the context of what the actual gap to make a difference and an impact in the affordable housing crisis that we have is. I mean, if you look at Boulder's goals, right, we have a 15% affordable housing goal, and I think the city's at about 8%. I think countywide, we have a 12% goal, and it's it's not there yet either. So you're saying 
there needs to be more direct correlation between the funding that's needed to to meet those gaps versus just talking about those goals? Exactly. Uh, we tend to pass funds and then kind of see how far it goes and then do a, an assessment years later and see how much further we've dropped back and then try to pass more funding, but again, not actually tied to the need. So that's a huge part of the issue. Um, next is, you know, filling the tax credit gap. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, tax credits, the, and the program is called the Low Income Housing Tax Credit, abbreviated as LIHTC. So that program uh, is a pretty large funder of housing, but as I said, there's, it's not sufficient for the need and uh, it's competitive. So we need to find another funding or finance source that's similarly sized that can uh, fund projects that don't get funded through the tax credit program. We also need to uh, eliminate zoning and regulatory constraints. So these constraints, you know, really, as I alluded to earlier, keep the supply from meeting the demand arbitrarily beyond what the market already is doing. So you need to permit reasonably um, sized multifamily development in or near single-family neighborhoods uh, and allow for density bonuses and all the things that I actually mentioned that Longmont does, for instance. Um, another way of addressing it would be to harness the market by, uh, you know, no matter how much housing you subsidize, it's never going to uh, be built at the rate of the market. So having incentives, like again, density bonuses and other things, that to have the uh, to have market rate developers contribute to the affordable housing stock is a another important step. That's partially addressed through inclusionary housing, but there's other ways that we can address that as well. You could also uh, subsidize owners, uh, for instance, homeowners who choose to sell their homes to low to moderate income households. And you could also use the same methods that predatory investors use to identify vulnerable homeowners and then uh, try to get them to sell their homes so they can flip them later. Well, you can use those same tactics to figure out what homeowners are in need and might be close to foreclosure or just feeling the pressure because mounting taxes and other things are keeping them from being able to stay in their house sustainably and then pair them with programs so they can stay there. You can work with affordable housing developers to ensure they have a smooth regulatory path and sufficient funding per unit uh, to actually build uh, the housing that you say you desire. Uh, this is important because development and land costs are increasing every year. Finally, arguably at the root of it all, is you could increase wages. One of the main issues is that housing costs have grown uh, faster than wages have for a long time now. Uh, improving wages probably wouldn't be able to fully match the super mercurial and uh, chaotic housing market that we have, but it would go a long way towards helping at least moderate income folks be able to afford uh, homes today. All right, so we've talked about a lot of different policies, the funding that's needed to build more affordable housing, but what's the ultimate goal? You know, why do we have these affordable housing initiatives in the first place? That's a really good question. You know, I think there's two, we'll go with two main uh, sort of goals of affordable housing. Uh, one is, you know, because there's this famous uh, sort of lens that uh, social sciences look at or look through, um, which is called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. And that states that housing, along with food and water, is really at the base uh, of 
the human needs pyramid, if you will. And without those three things, it's extremely difficult for anyone to thrive. So housing stability or just having a home in the first place is in a way an end to itself. Now, in addition to that, we know that, as I said earlier, housing is the largest contributor of wealth uh, to most families in this country. Uh, and there's been a long history for race-related reasons, related to redlining, uh, and also just class-related reasons that have kept huge portions of the uh, population out of home ownership. Uh, so for instance, right now, 68% uh, of white households in Colorado uh, are owners, homeowners. Uh, that's, there's only 52% of Latinos that are homeowners and only 37% of black households. Uh, and this sort of plays out into wealth gaps as well, where uh, the median or the average wealth of a white family in America is about $116,000. Um, dollars, and uh, the average wealth of a black family is more like $16,000. So, uh, really repairing some of these uh, historical ills and evils uh, and inequities that we've perpetuated in this country uh, by providing access to homeownership and stable housing is a big part of how we can improve upward mobility and decrease the wealth gap. So housing is important as a right, uh, and it's also important as a tool to empower all families in Colorado to provide the best lives they can for themselves and their families. Stepping away from that from a bird's eye perspective, uh, there are a ton of societal benefits and economic benefits to empowering people to be able to fully participate in society. Uh, so all those things together, uh, you know, I would almost say the question is, you know, why not invest in affordable housing? Yeah. So what can, you know, the average person, regular people do um, when it comes to affordable housing? Do you have any practical advice for, you know, our listeners, either those maybe who need affordable housing or those who want to proactively contribute to solutions? Sure. So uh, if you need affordable housing, uh, if you are uh, homeless or you know someone who's currently experiencing homelessness, uh, it's good to connect them to uh, the 211 system uh, that is run by Mile High United Way. You just call that number and they can link you up to a whole suite of services, including uh, uh, potential options for um, housing uh, or lease shelters. Uh, if you're um, searching for a home, uh, you can uh, call uh, a housing counselor uh, and you can reach them also through the 211 uh, system or you can directly call organizations like NewSED or Brothers Redevelopment or Northeast Denver Housing uh, that can uh, sort of help you identify down payment assistance programs and first-time homebuyer programs, as well as just generally educate you to empower you to be able to buy in this market. Now, all of that assistance might not help you in certain markets, so there's a number of other options, uh, such as working with Habitat for Humanity 
or land trusts like Elevation Community Land Trust or Northeast Denver Housing and, and other nonprofit organizations, Brothers Redevelopment, CRHDC, all those nonprofits work to build affordable homeownership opportunities. So those are things you can do uh, if you're looking for housing. Now, if you want to be part of you know, increasing the overall supply of affordable housing and just reducing this crisis and creating a more inclusive community, uh, there's a couple of ways that you can help. One is that, you know, whenever there's an affordable housing development going up uh, in your neighborhood or nearby, you know, what, what often happens is that the people who are, are okay with it don't always show up uh, to testify. And the ones who are really, really against it come out in mass. Uh, I've been at uh, public hearings in Aurora and other cities where you'll have over 100 people will come out and just one after another state why, uh, you know, this development is going to be so terrible for their community, et cetera, et cetera. It's the, the NIMBY playbook. Uh, so if you really do support housing, you should come out to support it when it's being built near and around you. Uh, the other way to do it is to just, uh, as we were saying earlier, hold your elected officials accountable to the goals and the needs in the housing realm that uh, that they themselves have identified. So if, uh, if an affordable housing fund is passed, um, try to figure out whether or not it's enough. And, you know, it doesn't even take that much, you know, um, calculations. Boulder, for instance, the county of Boulder has identified that it needs, it needs to create 800 units per year uh, across the entire county um, in order to eventually reach the goal of 12% affordability. Now, you should maybe ask your public officials, is 12% a good goal? Is that enough? And then furthermore, how many units are we creating per year? And how does that factor into the overall county? By asking questions like that, you can sort of determine whether or not your municipality and your legislator is pulling their weight to meet these goals. If they're not, then say, thank you for passing that affordable housing fund, but it's not enough. Another way that you can sort of change the conversation about housing uh, sort of harkens back to what we were saying earlier, where if you care about public safety, for instance, uh, well, we know that 50% of all people who are incarcerated in Colorado end up in jail again sometime in the future. But programs like the Second Chance Center of Aurora and others across the state have shown that by housing uh, people who are exiting the criminal justice system, you can reduce that recidivism rate massively. Talk about that as part of a strategy um, in spheres outside of housing when it comes to uh, the police and, and, and police pol policy and public safety policy. Talk about when it comes to education. Everything that housing touches, you can bring up as a, as a, uh, a potential part of the solution to whatever else they're trying to accomplish. Here's an interesting fact. Um, we know, like you said before, the, the role that um, homeownership plays in wealth. Well, interesting study came out, um, I believe it was last year, showing that uh, kids who uh, score poorly um, in uh, kindergarten, uh, when compared to who are wealthy, compared to kids who are not wealthy or don't have wealthy parents who scored well, 70% uh, of them end up going to college, whereas this, like, the highest scoring kids who are uh, come from poorer families 
only 30% of them go to college. So that's kind of an example of how if you really want to make changes in education policy, a huge part of it is improving the socioeconomic status and the housing stability of the parents. So in short, uh, folks can get involved by holding their elected officials accountable to actually meet the goals that are needed to create an equitable society in your community, turn out and show up uh, for local issues uh, when it comes to housing developments that are going up in your community and also, you know, land use changes and, and uh, strategic planning and comprehensive planning and advocate for housing there. Uh, if you're involved in other non-housing issues, uh, talk about when you're in, you know, speaking with public officials about the connection between those things and housing there. Uh, all these things um, can really contribute to creating the political will that is needed to make a big change. And just for reference, uh, if that sounds a little bit too, you know, wishy-washy, just remember that uh, it was political will that, at least in the case of Denver, uh, made it so that in 2013, there was a bill to create a small affordable housing fund of about $15 million. And uh, it nearly didn't pass. Because people kept on talking to those city council people about how important it was, um, those same city council members, almost the exact same class of city council folks, were able to then pass, you know, now $77 million. And for most of the most recent uh, increases, almost unanimously. Well, thanks, Jonathan. Uh, I really appreciate you being here and talking through all of those different policies and history and everything that kind of has gotten us to where we are and also some ideas of how we can move forward. Thanks for having me, Angela. You've been listening to Unaffordable, a podcast about affordability solutions from Boulder Weekly and KGNU. I'm Angela K. Evans. Stay tuned for more conversations in the series. Thanks for listening.